All right, well, before we dive into our lesson this morning, let's turn to the Lord once again in prayer. Father, how grateful we are for your word, uh, for the way that you use it to uh, not only uh, acquaint us with the plan of salvation, but to uh, bring us under conviction and to, to bring us to a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Father, I thank you for that work of grace that you have performed. And Father, too, we thank you that uh, you use your word to, to grow us and to mature us and uh, Father, I pray that you would work that process in us even this morning as we uh, open the scriptures. We pray for the work of your spirit that you would grant us wisdom to understand and uh, uh, just the ability to apply. Father, we know we can't do that in and of ourselves, but uh, uh, we are totally reliant on your work in us. And so I pray that uh, you would use this hour for uh, our benefit and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we've just prayed about uh, missionaries, it's just kind of a reminder that there are uh, missionaries from countryside, really, all, literally all over the world. And when you think about um, believers who are scattered around the world, it, it just quickly makes us aware that we've got believers, people who are followers of Christ, who are in a wide variety of cultures. I mean, just think for a moment how many different cultures there are uh, around the world. And so one of the challenges for followers of Christ in every setting is that uh, they are living in a culture that, you know, is probably very unbiblical. And uh, so they must evaluate their native cultural practices against the principles of Scripture so that they can hold on to the things that are good, things that are in line with what God has said in His Word, and they can reject the things that are contrary to what God has said, the things that are affront to his holiness, or things that simply aren't helpful. So one of the challenges in doing that is that care must be exercised in discerning which principles in Scripture are principles that apply for all time, at every place, in every culture, and which principles are kind of a foundation, but from that uh, there are a variety of uh, applications that can vary depending on time and culture. Well, this morning as we come to a passage in 1 Corinthians that requires uh, this sort of discernment of uh, determining what kind of passage we're dealing with, uh, not all believers in this particular passage have come to the same conclusion as to how it should be applied. And the subject has to do with visual cues that are designed to make a clear distinction between males and females. And that's a subject that opens the door to many questions and certainly in the time allotted, we're not going to have time to consider them all. <laughs> and uh, my prayer is that we will come away with an accurate and clear understanding of the basic ideas that the Lord has for us here in this text. You know, for the believer, God's design is simple and it's clear. Genesis 1.27 reads, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then Genesis 2.18 goes on to add, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So how many genders did God create? Two. It's not a hard question, is it? <laughs> Are the two genders identical? No. 
you know, when you think about it, not only are the obvious physical differences, uh, you know, and I guess you could answer this question, well, it, it, it kind of depends on what you mean. Are they identical in terms of being created in God's image? Yes. But again, they're physically different, and you can tell from Genesis 2.18 that they're created for different roles. So although some people in our own culture would deny it uh, and choose to believe a lie instead, God's design seems obvious to most, even those around the world who know nothing about the Bible. There are two genders, and they are different. (laughs) And so historically, cultures around the world have adopted uh, various visual standards to kind of identify whether someone is male or someone is female. And the most obvious form of the most common form, I guess would say, uh, that distinguishes between the two has to do with the length of hair. That in most cultures around the world, uh, women have longer hair than men do. And then a common distinctive in many cultures even today is one based on wearing or not wearing head coverings. Now today, maybe everybody would be in favor of head coverings (laughs) when it's 14 degrees outside. Well, this question of wearing or not wearing head coverings in many uh, cultures is, is a way of distinguishing between males and females. And while our text for today is centered on this question of head coverings, the principles here are really much broader in application. And so uh, the underlying theme we want to consider this morning is this. For the believer, lifestyle choices ought always to glorify God, being directed by his word and not by self-centered interests. And so, let me begin by just looking at the passage as a whole for us. So, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 2. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. Paul writes, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. 
this raise any questions in anybody's mind? <laughs> yeah. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, this passage, it raises lots of questions, and, and it's been much debated. You know, over the years, believers studying this passage have not always come uh, to the same conclusions. And in a few moments, we're going to delve into this passage verse by verse. But before we do that, let's consider a few questions. Here's one. Is this passage teaching that Christian women should be wearing head coverings whenever they go out in public? Marketplace, Corinth, you know, that's, that's a question. Is, he, is this a principle here that would involve uh, women in any setting? Or is this passage only dealing with head coverings in the context of corporate worship? Another question is, is this question of head coverings one that is based on a particular cultural and historical setting valid just for that time? Or is it a principle based on God's created order that applies in every time and culture? That's a pretty important question. And then we got a few more questions. What kind of covering is Paul referring to when he says a woman should have her head covered? Is he talking about a shawl? Is he talking about a veil? Is he talking about both? What exactly is he talking about? What was the normal practice for women in the first century? And what did it communicate? And then I threw this one in there for good measure. Did women in the U.S. who commonly wore hats to church prior to about 1960 have the right idea? <laughs> I'll answer that one for you. No. <laughs> it was a fashion statement, but I don't think uh, women at that time were really thinking about uh, what it was communicating in that sense. So as we attempt to answer these questions and other ones that are uh, raised in this particular text, I want to start by uh, considering uh, a bit of cultural context. You know, the truth of the matter is that if you were to research historical records uh, to try to find out, well, what exactly were women doing uh, at that uh, point in time, what you would discover is that the number of texts that even talk about it is pretty limited. However, the Bible Knowledge Commentary cites a number of ancient texts that do speak to this matter, and they offer this helpful summary. Quote, It cannot be unequivocally asserted, but the preponderance of evidence points toward the public head covering of women as a universal custom in the first century in both Jewish culture and Greco-Roman culture. The nature of covering varied considerably, but it was commonly a portion of the outer garment drawn up over the head like a hood. So if you can picture uh, that, that kind of covering, that was, uh, as the evidence indicates, uh, that was the practice in different cultures of that time. So the normal practice for women in the church in Corinth would have been then to, uh, to wear a, a head covering that was something akin to what we see many Muslim women wearing today. And that seems clear from what the Apostle Paul says in our text. But, you know, even a, a cursory reading of this particular passage reveals that some Corinthian women were choosing to throw back their, their head covering. Look at verse 13, for example. It says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Kind of a rhetorical question. The assumed answer is no. 
Well, last week, Jay concluded the three-chapter segment of Paul's letter that's devoted to the subject of the proper exercise of Christian liberty. And now, starting with chapter 11, Paul moves from issues related to Christian liberty to issues related to conduct in the church. So he's kind of shifting gears uh, at this point. And he uses this... uh, opening portion of chapter 11 is something of uh, of a bridge. You know, the fact that in this section on worship, he begins by addressing the matter of women removing their head coverings suggests that, uh, you know, similar to the question of, uh, well, what about eating meat that's sacrificed to idols? You know, here is another question uh, where there was perhaps uh, an inappropriate exercise of Christian liberty going on. Commentator David Lowry writes this. He says, It seems that the Corinthian slogan, everything is permissible, and when he says that, he's referring back to chapter 10, verse 23, which in our translation says, all things are lawful. So again, he says, It seems that the Corinthian slogan, everything is permissible, had been applied to meetings of the church as well. And the Corinthian women had expressed that principle by throwing off their distinguishing dress. I personally think that Lowry is right. I think that's what's going on here, uh, is that there was uh, kind of an abuse of Christian liberty uh, that was happening, and we'll, we'll get into that more as we, as we continue. That uh, apparently they were celebrating their liberty in Christ, but without regard to the impact that it was having on anyone else in the church. So with that background in mind, let's begin by examining the text verse by verse. You'll notice that the passage begins with Paul's offering of praise. Look once again at verse 2. He says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Well, you may recall that back in chapter 1, Paul opened his letter to the Corinthians uh, by giving thanks to God for the grace that he had given them in, in rescuing them and saving them, the grace of the gospel, and for evidence of the Lord's work in their lives. Remember, we talked about how, how gifted they were as a church. But we've also seen that Paul expressed his love for the members of the church body through his addressing them several times as brethren. We've seen that uh, through the course of the letter to this point. And then in chapter 7, he even refers to them as my beloved brethren. So it's clear that Paul is grateful to the Lord for them and for the Lord's work in their lives, and it's clear that he really loves them. But as we've seen from verse 10 of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 10, how many times has Paul complimented them? Hmm, give you a hint. Zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, he has not been gushing with compliments, has he? No, he's, he's been teaching them that uh, you've, got, you've got issues, you've got problems uh, that, that need to be corrected. But now, in chapter 11, verse 2, at last he offers them a point of praise. So what is it that they've been doing well? What does he say here in verse 2? What have they been doing well? Traditions, yeah. Yeah, you'll notice he says here, I praise you because you remember me in everything. So they're remembering what Paul has been saying. And what do they do with these traditions? What does it say? They hold firmly to them. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of raises a question. Well, what's Paul talking about here with the traditions? Is he, 
Is he talking about the, the tradition that he's given them on how the chairs should be set up when they meet for worship? You know, what, what sort of tradition is this? Um, you know, to be sure, he's not talking about the sort of man-made traditions which, uh, for which Jesus rebuked the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, he's not talking about mere man-centered opinions from himself or from anyone else. What he is referring to here is the spirit-led apostolic teaching that he delivered to them. You know, we know this because Paul uses the same terminology in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. In that text, he says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So when he's using this term traditions, what he's talking about is apostolic teaching. And what is the church in Corinth doing? They have done well with this. They've remembered what Paul has taught them, and they are holding fast to it. They were continually remembering the foundational doctrines that Paul had given them, holding firmly to them. So now you might be think, uh, thinking to yourself, well, well, wait a minute. How could the Corinthian church be doctrinally sound and yet have so many problems? You know, it, it, doesn't, seem to, it doesn't seem to fit. Well, as we've discussed before, the issue with the church in Corinth uh, wasn't one of doctrinal issues. Uh, basically, they held to the right core beliefs. Their issue was one of spiritual immaturity. They had the right core beliefs, but at the same time, they were weak in applying biblical principles to life. And in fact, in, in many areas of life, they had failed to recognize that what they had bought into was the world's way of thinking and the world's way of conducting themselves uh, and had not allowed Scripture to, to inform their decisions and how they should be living. They were a church that, in too many respects, still looked and acted a lot like the world. Well, then in the next verse, Paul moves from this compliment to call their attention to a specific point of doctrine, one that they need to fully uh, understand and apply in their conduct. So here he offers a foundational principle. It's God's hierarchical hierarchical, it's easy for me to say, right, design. Look at verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So certainly a key term here is the word head. You know, in Greek, it's the same as in English. The word translated head is used in two different senses. It can refer to the head as a physical part of the body, or it can be used in a figurative sense to refer to someone in authority, someone who is to be respected and obeyed. You know, we talk about the head of a committee or the head of a corporation. It's that, that kind of sense. Well, in this particular verse, verse 3, Paul is using head in that figurative sense. But as we continue through the passage, we're going to find that Paul also uses head in the physical sense as well. But now take a look at the first phrase of verse 3. Paul says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. In other words, Jesus Christ has supreme authority over every person. Jesus is Lord of all. That's what he's saying. I like how John MacArthur expresses what Christ's headship means. MacArthur writes this, he says, Jesus Christ is uniquely the head of the church as its Savior and Lord. He has redeemed and bought it with his own blood. 
But in his divine authority, Christ is the head of every human being, believer and unbeliever. In his patience and forbearance, God has allowed rebellious unbelievers to ignore Christ's lordship. But one day, even they will acknowledge their subjection to him. That kind of brings to mind Philippians chapter 2, verses 10-11, which read, uh, Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Paul's meaning in this first phrase is clear. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of all. He's Lord of, of everyone. And so when he's establishing this hierarchy, uh, that's where Jesus uh, places. It's over every human being. Similarly, the meaning of the phrase at the end of the verse is fully evident, where he says, God is the head of Christ. Okay, so what's he talking about there? Well, he's just saying that in his incarnation, although Jesus is fully God, Jesus lovingly and willingly uh, submitted to his heavenly Father's will in all things. Listen to just a couple of the many verses that spell this out. John chapter 5, verse 30 reads this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38 reads, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus lovingly, willingly submitted to uh, the will of the Father. And yet, in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus also said, I and the Father are one. So the point is that Jesus willingly submitted to the Father in all things, and yet he made it very clear that he is equal to God because he is God. And so taking these facts together demonstrates that to submit to one in authority does not in any sense imply inferiority. It's simply a difference in roles. So again, Paul's meaning is clear that first of all, Christ is the head of every man and also that God is the head of Christ. But look at the middle phrase of that verse. That's the one where there's been some divergence of opinion. It reads, the man is the head of a woman. Now, some commentators take the position that uh, Paul is explaining a general principle of authority and subordination that applies to all men and all women in all aspects of society and not just in marriage. And I'm not convinced that that's what Paul is teaching here, nor is that the position of Countryside Bible Church. Notice that while he refers in the first phrase to every man, you see that he says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. In the second phrase, he does not say, every man is the head of every woman. Instead, he says, the man is the head of a woman, wording that suggests uh, in this phrase that he has in mind uh, the one man, one woman, uh, husband-wife relationship. Now, the Greek word that Paul uses here can be translated either woman or wife. You could translate it either way, same word. It depends on the context. And so the ESV actually translates the phrase in verse 3 this way, the head of a wife is her husband. So Paul has in view here the hierarchy in marriage. I think that's what he's talking about here in verse 3. So in verse 3, Paul has set down this universal principle of God's hierarchical uh, design of authority. 
But practically, what does that mean? What are the points of application of this principle that appear in other passages of Scripture? What we find are Scripture texts that offer two specific areas of gender-based authority. One of them is the principle of male leadership in the church, and the other is male headship in the home. For example, in his letter to Timothy, where he explains how churches are to be led and how church members are to conduct themselves, Paul writes this. He says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. That's 1 Timothy 2, 11-12. Well, it's important to note that the fact that men are to lead in the church in no way implies uh, that they are more spiritual than women or even more capable than women. It's simply the structure of authority that God has established. In Galatians 3.28 we read, There is neither Jew or Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The point is that in Christ, uh, men and women have exactly the same spiritual standing before God. Likewise, regarding the marriage relationship, Paul writes this, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. That, of course, is Ephesians 5, to 24 So the scriptures are also clear that both in the church and in the home, male leadership, it's to be servant leadership motiva- motivated by love. I like the way John MacArthur expresses this point. This is what he writes. The authority and submission in each of these cases is based on love, not tyranny. The Father sent Christ out of love, not under compulsion, to redeem the world. And the Son submitted to the Father out of love, not compulsion. Christ loves the church so much that he died for it, and he rules the church in love, not in tyranny. In response, the church submits to him in love. Likewise, husbands should exercise their authority in love, not tyranny. They do not have authority because of greater worth or greater ability, but simply because of God's wise design and loving will. I think that's a good summary. So, having established this principle of headship, a God-ordained principle of hierarchy that is always true and is without regard to culture, Paul then goes on to offer the cultural application of God's design. You know, the question is, you know, given what Paul has set down here in verse 3, uh, these principles that, that stand for all time, uh, what should this God-given principle of authority look like in the first century church in Corinth? How should it be applied? And he be- begins by addressing an, appro- an inappropriate practice for men. Look at verse 4. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying uh, disgraces his head. And again, you'll notice these references to praying and prophesying. This is how uh, commentators are in agreement that what Paul's talking about here is the context of uh, the church gathering for worship. Um, And and you'll you'll see that again as we continue through the passage. But here he's saying, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces 
his head. So here Paul first uses the word head in the physical sense, uh, and then in the second usage in this sentence, he intends perhaps both the physical sense and the figurative sense. So think about Corinth. It seems unlikely that any men in the church in Corinth were actually doing this. What it would amount to is a man covering his head like a woman and praying aloud or speaking God's revelation in corporate worship. Can you picture that in the assembled church in Corinth where a man comes in and he, he puts a shawl over his head like, like a woman? Not only would it be inappropriate, it would seem silly. Commentators agree that in the first century, for a man to have his head covered during public worship would be considered a disgrace to himself. Men just don't do that. It's a disgrace to his own head. And it's dishonor, dishonoring to Christ, his spiritual head. So with that point he, he, that he starts with, then he goes on to address an inappropriate practice for women. Look at verse 5. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman who, whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. <laughs> so notice that with women, the situation is exactly the opposite. The normal practice in worship in that culture was uh, for the woman to have her head covered as a symbol of submission to her husband. And Paul makes reference here to Corinthian women praying or prophesying which if it was being done during corporate worship, that in itself was inappropriate, which is a subject that Paul's going to take up uh, in chapter 14. But it seems here that his focus is really on this matter of, of head covering, and so he doesn't really talk about uh, the praying and prophesying at, at this point. His focus is on women in the church conducting themselves like men by removing their head coverings in a move that was a sign of role reversal. That's, that's kind of how this... Uh, would have appeared uh, to the people in Corinth. So Paul is saying that this action was as disgraceful as a man trying to look like a woman during worship. And you'll notice that he says that in doing this, she di disgraces her head. Again, possibly a, a reference to disgracing herself, her own head. Uh, but certainly it means that she's dishonoring her husband, her spiritual head. The Bible Knowledge Commentary puts it this way. Quote, according to Paul, for a woman to throw off the covering was not an act of liberation, but of degradation. Another commentator, uh, Harold Mayer, he adds this, for a woman taking off her head covering in public and exposing her hair was a sign of loose morals and sexual promiscuity. Well, that's interesting. What his point is that this is what prostitutes did in that culture in an effort to attract men. They would not have a head covering and they would say, look at my hair. That was uh, kind of the, the purpose of, of doing that. And so to engage in this practice in a church setting would have been shocking. Look again at, at uh, Paul's wording. For every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. So, hmm. Then he says in verse 6, For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. 
But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, and it is, <laughs> or her head shaved, and it is, let her cover her head. So what's that all about? Well, again, Mayor, I think, offers some helpful insight here on verse 6. He writes, Paul says that she might as well have her hair cut off or shaved off. And here's the point. The shaved head indicated that the woman either had been publicly disgraced because of some shameful act, or she was openly flaunting her independence and her refusal to be in submission to her husband. You see, this is how uh, prostitutes who were caught this is how they were identified. They would shave their heads as, as an act of, of uh, public shame. And, and so Paul is saying, for a woman to do this during worship, uh, she might as well shave her head. It's, it's that shameful. And so rather than engage in shameful behavior, she was to honor her husband by keeping her head covered during worship. So, Paul has taken the timeless standard of God's design of authority that he summarized uh, in verse 3, and then he's applied it to a specific cultural situation in verses 4 through 6. But would the Corinthians be uh, convinced? Well, next we come to Paul's arguments supporting gender distinctions. Well, in the next series of verses, uh, Paul piles kind of one argument on top of another in support of his instruction on this matter of head coverings. The first thing he uh, argues is that uh, it is a matter of glory. Look at verse 7. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Well, we quoted Genesis 1.27 earlier. Who was created in the image of God? Is it just the man? No. Verse 127, Genesis 1.27, again, says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, is, is the idea. So both the man and the woman were created in the image of God. But notice in verse 7, Paul makes a distinction between the man and the woman regarding glory. He describes a man as the image and glory of God, whereas the woman is the glory of man. So what Paul is referring to here is the authority that God has delegated to man as his representative. God has chosen the man to, to represent him, and he carries that uh, glory. Not because he's superior, which in fact he's not, but simply by God's sovereign choice. The glory of the woman, on the other hand, is to voluntarily submit to the authority of man, her husband. Again, this is displayed in Scripture in the realms of male leadership in the home and the male leadership in the church. Well, Paul goes on to develop his argument further with a second point by explaining that it isn't just a matter of, of glory being granted, but that God's designed hierarchy is evident from the order of creation. Notice how Paul continues in verse 8. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. So Paul is summarizing here in just a few words the account in Genesis 2, uh, where we read that uh, Adam uh, was created by God from the dust of the ground. But then after that, God created Eve from Adam's body. And the idea is that Eve's lesser authority is consistent with the fact that she was created from Adam and after Adam. 
Paul then continues with a third point derived from creation, and that's that God designed Adam and Eve uh, with a difference in roles. Look at verse 9. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. So here, Paul is once again pointing to Genesis. In this case, it's Genesis 2.18, which reads, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. That word translated suitable literally means corresponding to. In other words, God made man and woman equal in terms of their spiritual standing before him, but that they are not identical Instead, their differences make them a perfect complement for each other. That's what's uh, indicated in that word suitable. She's a helper, uh, but she is made as a perfect uh, complement uh, to him. And of course, this is not to say that every man or woman must be married. We just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 a few weeks ago that God has given some the gift of singleness. But husband and wife are made to complement each other but in different roles, with the wife's role to be the husband's helper and ally and the husband's role to be uh, the protector and, and to love his wife. Writing in the expositor's commentary, again turning to Harold Mayer, he summarizes the three arguments that we've seen in verses 7 through 9 this way. Uh, he writes, In stating that a man should not have his head covered in church, Paul argues that this follows from the principle that man was prior to woman and is the image and glory of God. That is, he is to be subject to and represent God in authority. The woman, however, is the glory of man. That is, she is to be subject to man and to represent him in authority. Although God created Adam and Eve and gave them dominion over the creation, that's Genesis 1.26, Paul argues for man's exercise of authority above woman's on the basis of man's prior creation to woman. The argument goes like this. Woman came from man, she was made from his body, and she was made for man's sake, not the reverse. So I think that's a pretty good summary of what Paul's saying here in verses 7 to 9. So Paul's point of application then is that in the context of worship, in the Corinthian church, it was an appropriate thing for a man to follow the customary cultural practice of that time, worshiping with his head uncovered as a sign that he is representing God's authority according to God's uh, role that he had been given. And it was appropriate for uh, women to follow the customary cultural practice of keeping her head covered as a sign representing the fact that she was under the authority of her husband, according to her God-given role. So based on what he's argued so far, Paul offers another reason why this is important. It's because of the observation of angels. Look at verse 10. Therefore, <laughs> what he's, here's, here's what follows from what he's just said. Therefore, uh, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Well, that's clear, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, this is one of those verses that uh, perhaps raises more questions than it answers. Uh, but actually, though, when we search the scriptures, we find that there's a number of places uh, in the Bible that point to the fact that, that angels are actively observing the church. Did you ever think about that? 
Probably not a whole lot. I haven't thought about it a whole lot, but turn back to chapter 4. We've already actually seen this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verse 9. Let me start with verse 8. This is, this is a section where he's kind of rebuking uh, the, the Corinthians um, you know, regarding the fact that the Corinthians kind of think pretty highly of themselves and maybe not so highly of Paul as they ought. He says, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might reign also with you. For I think God has exhibited us as apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men. I think probably when we were reading chapter 4, we didn't really pay a lot of attention to that particular phrase. But it's kind of interesting, isn't it, uh, that it's not just men, people that are observing what's going on with the apostles, but also angels are observing them as well. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul wrote of the grace given to him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles so that, Quote, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Well, what's he talking about when he says rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? What he's talking about is angels, both holy angels and fallen angels. They are observing what's going on in the church. In writing instructions to his protege, Timothy, regarding proper conduct in the church, Paul penned these words. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. That's 1 Timothy 5.21. The angels are watching and are concerned with what's happening in the church. And that's the point that Paul is making here in verse 10. For the women in the church in Corinth to throw off their head coverings would have been a display of independence that was shocking, not only to other church members, but also to the angels. Why? Because it would be a blatant act of role reversal from God's design for men and women. It would be role reversal, just like a man covering his head and looking like a woman while he's uh, conducting uh, worship. Uh, it's now the woman is kind of conducting herself like a man and it, it's a denial of God's created design. Now Paul was well aware that his arguments to this point uh, could have been misconstrued as male chauvinism. And so lest anyone were to conclude that Paul was somehow claiming male superiority because he's talked about the, the order of creation and he's talked about the different roles and so on, uh, he offers a point of clarification in verses 11 and 12. However, he says, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. So Paul makes clear that while it's true that man was created first, and then woman was created uh, from the body of the man, that in no way makes her inferior. Man and woman are dependent on each other, is the point that he's making here in verses 11 and 12. They complement each other, uh, and just as Eve came from Adam's body, 
So every man born since uh, has been born of a woman's body. Men and women are interdependent. And then he makes this point at the end of the verse, and both originate from God and therefore are equal in value. It's really another way of stating the truth of Galatians 3.28 that we read earlier, that in, in Christ there's, they are the same. They have the same spiritual standing. So in verse 13, Paul resumes his chain of arguments by making the case that head coverings were the cultural norm. This is the verse that we read earlier. Look at it again. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Now, sitting where you are in the 21st century, how would you be inclined to answer Paul's question? Uh, <laughs> judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to a God with, with her head uncovered? I think most of us would not have much difficulty with that, would we? Yeah, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? You know, clearly Paul was asking this. Again, it's a rhetorical question with the assumed answer being, no, of course not. <laughs> because based on the cultural norm of that time, for a woman to do this would have been seen as a radical and rebellious act. Uh, perhaps in our culture, you know, I was thinking about our culture and thinking, okay, well, what would be shocking in our culture? And it's almost hard to think of anything. Our culture is, is, has become has become so devoid of standards, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to relate to this. But here's, here's my attempt at an illustration. It might be something like a woman coming to worship in a black leather motorcycle jacket with a skull and crossbones on the back with spiked orange hair and a bear claw necklace. And she comes into worship center and it would be a way of saying, look at me everyone, I am a rebel. I think that's the kind of picture, obviously that's an exaggeration, but that's the kind of picture uh, that, that Paul is offering here. In that culture, in that time, uh, this, was, this was something that was odd <laughs> and uh, attention-getting and not in a good way. Well, then Paul goes on to reinforce his case with another point. He talks about God's design of the human body. That takes us to verse 14. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. You know, as I mentioned earlier, in most cultures around the world, a key distinguishing mark between uh, males and females is that women wear their hair longer uh, than their male counterparts. Again, you know, it's relative, um, Biologically, most women are able to grow longer, thicker hair throughout their lifespan than men can. And for, for some of us men, it's becoming a, increasingly a challenge to grow any hair on the top of our heads at all. But it's true, isn't it? I mean, women tend to have, have long, thick, full hair. And uh, for most of us men, it's not quite that way. So Paul is simply saying, hey, look around you. God has provided women with long hair as a natural covering. And he's arguing, well, well so doesn't it make sense to continue following the custom of wearing head coverings in worship? Women have coverings. They should, they should keep them. So Paul completes his discourse with one last argument. He points to the fact that women keeping their, head covering in wor their heads covered in worship was the practice in all the churches. Look at verse 16. 
But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. And so Paul concludes uh, you know, building his case by reminding them uh, that what he's asking them to do is, is simply to abide by the normal uh, cultural practice that had been in place not only in Corinth, but everywhere churches had been established to that point in time. So that brings us to the big question. Should head coverings be the practice of women at countryside? Is that what this passage is teaching? Since Paul concludes by saying, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. You know, this is one of those passages that if you pull a few of these verses out of context, verse 16 being one of them, you know, you might come to that conclusion. You know, gals expect a change in fashion next week. <laughs> now, uh, clearly the answer to that is no, it's not what the passage is teaching. You know, life is full of choices. We make choices every day uh, regarding what we're going to wear, how we're going to look, and how we're going to conduct ourselves. And most of the time, it's probably not something to which we give very much thought. Based on the instruction that Paul is giving here, it seems that the women of Corinth uh, were giving this matter some thought, uh, but the problem was that their thinking was not directed to the glory of God. Their thinking, perhaps, was, was being driven by uh, what the world was saying, and it was being driven by their own self-interest. What they were doing... Uh, in doing these things, uh, they were doing this as something that was based on a desire perhaps to exercise their Christian liberty uh, since there is no clear command. They could, they could point to the Old Testament and say, well, there's no clear command that says, uh, you know, thou shalt have their, thy head covered. Uh, and so they may have just been saying, hey, we have freedom in Christ we have freedom you know, to, to do this, and, uh, and therefore it's okay. Or perhaps they were just doing this as a matter of physical comfort. You know, Corinth, in a warm climate, maybe they just thought, hey, let's, there's no spiritual reason we need to keep these on, so let's just take them off. Or perhaps it was an act of rebellion against their husbands or against church leaders where they're just saying, I've had enough of this submission stuff. Or perhaps feminists in secular Greco-Roman culture were defiantly abandoning head coverings, which historians tell us really was going on uh, in that point in time. We really don't know, regarding these Corinthian women, we really don't know their precise motive. But Paul makes it clear uh, that through their choice, they were making a strong statement. Cultural choices, the choices that all of us make every day, make a, a statement, and in this case, it's a strong statement and it wasn't good. So instead of thinking about God and his design for men and women and how their manner of dress could glorify God by, by pointing to the wisdom of his design, they were making their choices all about themselves. Instead of pointing to God, in effect, they were saying, hey, look at me, I'm free. So, there we have verses Two through 16. <laughs> so what do we do with this? What, what are the implications and, and applications? Well, first of all, I think we need to understand that there are foundational principles in Scripture that stand unchanged regardless of time and place. That principle of, of God setting up a hierarchy uh, is, is one of those things. That's why Paul goes to that, that statement in verse 3 where he outlines, hey, don't forget, this is how God has established creation. 
you know, we have Christ who is the head of every person, and God is the head of Christ. And then in the middle, he puts in there, uh, and the husband is the head of the wife, I think is the intent of, of that verse. That's a principle that's true, and it's always true, and it doesn't matter what culture uh, anybody lives in. It's true. But secondly, the application of those foundational principles in a particular time and place will vary because the meaning of symbols and expressions are subject to change as cultures change. Interestingly enough, you know, by the 4th century, Jewish men were covering their heads in, in worship. How that came about, I don't really know. But there was a cultural shift, and they began you know, wearing the, the yarmulkes or you know, uh, some kind of, of head covering. Cultures change. So an action that at one time sent a clear message may come to mean something entirely different in another time and place. Now, if a woman were to walk into the worship center at Countryside with a shawl pulled up over her head, you might think she came from a culture where women dress like that. Maybe. Or more likely, you might think she's cold because it's cold in the worship center. You probably would not be thinking, oh, she is glorifying God by showing submissiveness to her husband. I suspect if somebody were to walk in like that, that thought would not come to your mind. So uh, these cultural expressions, they don't always express the same thing over periods of time. It changes. Thirdly, our concern must be to make lifestyle choices that are honoring God and that never stem from a personal agenda that is really focused on ourselves. You remember uh, last week we looked at chapter 10, verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, including how you dress, do all to the glory of God. And that's kind of the, that was the theme of our, our lesson from last week, and that's kind of the uh, the bottom line here. We're not to focus on ourselves, we're to focus on God. Number four, specifically in keeping with God's design, we need to maintain any clear cultural distinctions between the genders. Guys are to be masculine, gals are to be feminine. And our culture has different ways of expressing that. Again, right now in our culture, there's so much confusion on that issue that, that may be a harder thing to do. Um, but, but that's the kind of thought uh, that, that we are to have. Is, you know, we are to, to, to point to the distinction that God has made in creation and not do anything that is, is kind of going to blur that or make it confusing. Number five, and this is the last one. Recognize that if you step outside of a cultural norm, so maybe this is something that doesn't, isn't really spelled out in Scripture. It's just a, a normal cultural practice. When you step out of that cultural norm, you are communicating a message. When we do something and people look at us and say, well, that's different, we are communicating something. And the question is, is the message you're communicating about you or is it about the glory of God? Again, it takes us back to what we read in chapter 10. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's what the women in Corinth were failing to do. So, this is a big subject. Um, <laughs> I, I talked to, to Joshua earlier when I was uh, working on this, and uh, uh, 
I spent lots of time trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to include and what are we going to leave out because there's not enough time to, to cover everything. But I have a footnote for you, and the footnote is this. All of us must live according to God's design by willingly submitting to those God has placed in authority over us, not just in the church, not just in the home, but in other aspects of life as well. And I would encourage you, if this is a subject that you're interested in or or you'd like to pursue further, I would strongly encourage you uh, to pull up Tom Pennington's sermon entitled, How to Submit to Your Husband. Now, when when you read that title, you might think, Oh, well, this only has to do with the women. Uh-uh. This message uh, is just an excellent, excellent treatment of this whole issue of, of authority and the way God has established authority. And he's not just talking about male, female. He also talks about uh, submission in terms of, of, of government authority and in terms of uh, working for your boss and, and other things. But it's, a, it's just a really good message. It was uh, September 13, 2015. So... No extra charge. You can, you can go, go check that out if you will. Well, with that, let me close us in prayer and we'll, we'll be dismissed. Father, how we do thank you for your great wisdom. Uh, Father, we know that uh, the, the differences between males and females are real uh, but they are complementary. They fit together perfectly. And uh, Father, it's just a, a, a sign of, of your great wisdom, of your uh, creative power. And uh, uh, Father, we just recognize too that uh, this whole matter of submitting to authority is part of your design as well. Father, I pray that you would just uh, help us to have wisdom in, in knowing uh, when and how we should be submissive. And um, Father, I pray that you'd make us sensitive to uh, cultural signals, uh, that you would uh, help us to be giving thought to uh, what do I need to be doing and how do I need to be doing it? How do I need to be conducting myself in a way that would bring you glory and would not uh, be selfish or self-centered or self-focused? Uh, Father, our desire is, is to lift you up and to, to not do anything that would uh, dishonor you or displease you. And Father, again, we, we know that we can only do that by your power, by the work of your spirit in each one of us. And uh, so, Father, we thank you that, uh, uh, that we have him in us. And uh, we pray that we would just uh, faithfully follow his leading, his prompting, as we continue to study the scriptures and, and apply them to life. And so, Father, we just uh, thank you for your great wisdom. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.